reporting on what has become a national holiday, Taylor Swift Day, I mean Super Bowl Sunday. Interesting commentary on the idols of our culture. Perhaps a sermon for another day. But we are it's so good to hear from Tanya and from the Kids Man team about the places where God is moving here in another, just another area in our kids' ministry. In fact, that's our series title. We're in the book of Acts, talking about the spirit on the move, looking at it in the first century, but also seeing it in reality here, and uh, kind of asking the Lord, what does he want uh, to teach us through this? So uh, if you're new with us, if you're new to this series, we're by just by way of reminder, uh, Luke in his narrative through Acts now pivots away from sort of these macro events, uh, uh, big numbers being added to the church, all of that. And he pivots to starting to talk about the spirit on the move through the testimonies of three people. So last week we looked at Stephen the martyr. This week and next week we'll look at Philip the evangelist. And then we'll look at Saul the persecutor um, as, we, as we go through this book. And as we do so, again, we want to look at the context, the time, culture, and place that the book of Acts is written in. We want to uh, understand and process that in our world, and then we want to apply it to our own lives. So in light of that, let me pray, and then we're going to dive deep into God's Word. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord. We approach your Word this morning uh, with a sense of anticipation, Lord, uh, with a sense of humility, Lord. Uh, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would bring clarity to uh, some of the uh, deep and heavy content we look at in this passage this morning. Uh, Lord, but more than anything, that you would help us to see, each one of us, where you would have us to apply this, that it might be transformative in our lives, that we might leave different than when we got here this morning, even if in some small and subtle way, and certainly, Lord, in something that's more profound. So we give you this time. Uh, Lord, we're, we're grateful. We handle your word this morning with a great sense of awe and reverence, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to jump right into the text, and I want to actually just back us up to kind of remind us of the scene into chapter 7, verse 59, at the moment at which Stephen is being stoned, he's being executed. So verse 59 says, while they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. And even in his death, Stephen emulates his Lord. Right? He dies similarly to how Jesus does on the cross. Verse 1, Saul agreed with putting him to death. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout, key phrase here, the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, dragging off the men and women and putting them into prison. And so those who were scattered went on the way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs that he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. In this first section, we see the church is scattered. We see uh, persecution and dispersion of the church. And kind of our subtext on our first point here uh, this morning is that authentic ministry actually grows with persecution. Despite the fact that this satanic attack, essentially, to squash, scatter, disperse, 
and persecute the church to do away with the gospel, to eradicate the gospel, God actually uses this to fulfill the missional mandate of the book of Acts expressed in Acts 1.8, the theme of Acts, that you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we see that with this scattering, uh, there, there's, uh, the gospel begins to spread. In fact, there are three positive effects that come out of Stephen's martyrdom specifically. The first is that the, mission, or the message is solidified. Stephen has confronted the Jewish leadership, uh, laid out their sin, put it right in front of them, accused them of uh, not only sin of rebellion against God, but even killing the righteous one, rejecting the Messiah. And he upholds Jesus as the savior of all men, and then he pays upon their rejection with his life. He lays down his life for his enemies. Here he says in, in the end of chapter 59, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so Stephen's theology that's live and living color is role-played in front of the Jews it will become replicated thousands and thousands of times down through human history. That brings us to the second point. The mission begins. Stephen's death and his message provokes this persecution, this satanic attack on the gospel. And we see Stephen as one of the byproducts of that, right? Or Philip, rather. Philip is, uh, goes down to either, it's either the region of Samaria or the city of Samaria. And he begins to, he does three things. First, he preaches. And we know that he preaches the gospel of Jesus because verse 12 tells us he preaches the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ and then that preaching is thereby validated by the moves of the Holy Spirit, the work of the supernatural, miracles, casting out of demons, so on and so forth. And then the result is joy, both in the physical deliverances and the spiritual deliverances. By the way, this is always the program of, of God's, the move of God. It's what Jesus did, right? Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, and then he validated his messiahship through the miracles that he performed. He even said, if you don't believe me for the words that I say, believe me for the works that I have done. And so Philip models this as well. It's preaching validated by miracles resulting in joy. The mission begins with the death of Stephen. Thirdly, the seeds of martyrdom were sown. Use that word in two, uh, in two ways. First, Stephen is the first martyr. He's the first seed. This sets in motion. Martyrdom will become part of the legacy of the gospel and the church going forth. It also used that word in terms of its definition in the Greek. Martyr means witness. And the seeds of the witness of Saul, the persecutor, have been sown as well. Saul, you'll remember we read uh, in verse 58 last week that Saul is the one who, uh, as they're stoning Stephen, the people uh, executing Stephen put their cloaks at the feet of Saul. It's as if Saul is there kind of like this. And verse one tells us that he's giving approval to Stephen's death. And verse three tells us that he's the initiator. He takes the lead on persecuting, ravaging is what the CSB uses uh, to describe Paul's efforts to purge the gospel out in its entirety. But Saul is there. He hears the speech of, Caesar, of Stephen. He sees Stephen dragged out of the city. He watches him uh, be stoned and executed. He hears him say, Lord, don't count this sin against them. And so later when Saul is converted, and we'll leave most of that for Zach to share with us in a couple weeks. By the way, if you're new to the Bible, spoiler, sorry. Um, it's interesting that in Saul's life, he too will be dragged before the Sanhedrin and falsely accused like Stephen was. He too will be dragged out of the city and stoned. 
He will face everything that Stephen does. And so the seeds of his witness, his, wit, his martyrdom are also planted. Little sub-application here. No one is beyond the reach of God's redemptive purposes and plan. No one is. Whether the greatest rebel or the most religious person, that's what Romans 1 through 3 tells us, right? No one is beyond the redemptive power. But back to our main point. The church is scattered and the church authentic ministry of the gospel actually multiplies and spreads under persecution. This begins with Stephen, but this has been the story of the gospel down through human history. It's only the church in the West that has had a reprieve of this. Many of our brothers and sisters around the world today pay for the gospel with, if not their lives, their livelihood, their safety in some regard. And it's been happening all through human history. I wanted to kind of focus by way of illustration on a particular period of human history where we see this play out pretty vividly. And uh, in the explosive expansion of the gospel in China in the early 19th, 1900s, the early 20th century, uh, we see this really, really clearly through the Boxer Rebellion that reached its apex in the summer of 1900. It's interesting, I didn't know that the, the term boxer actually was, uh, the bo- of the Boxer Rebellion was applied by Western people, uh, English and American people, who um, described this movement of young men who wanted to purge imperial China of all foreign influence, and in particular Christianity, that in their training, their martial arts training, the the form of training that they went through, uh, the Western folks called it boxing. And so that's how it got its name, the Boxer Rebellion. But it was a brutal movement of brutal persecution. In 1900, in the summer of 1900, 188 Christian missionaries and 32,000 Chinese Christians were butchered simply for being Christian. And what was an effort to eradicate Christianity from China? The most severe persecution took place in the northern China, Chinese province of Shangxi. And several missionaries in the summer of 1900 went there under the false pretense of safety and were kind of holed away, hiding out. And it's in this context that a young woman named Lizzie Atwater, American woman, American missionary who was pregnant at the time, wrote her parents a letter on August 3rd, 1900. And I want you to hear a little bit of her letter this morning, which has survived to today, but I want you to hear it in a different voice. So I've invited Katrina Stevens, who's the wife of our associate pastor, Zach, who is herself a young woman who is pregnant and who has also served on the foreign mission field. And... Katrina's going to read Lizzie's words from August 3rd, 1900, back to her family in the United States. So, Katrina, if you would. Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there seemed a chance of life, but God has taken away that feeling. And now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. 
Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passes understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but I am sorry that I have done so little. We will die together, my dear husband and I. Thank you. Can you stay with us for a minute, kind of in character, if you will? Um, I want you to note a couple things that, that Lizzie wrote to her parents. And, and think, if, if you have adult children around Katrina's age, think of your daughter and your grandchild in the womb in China and receiving this letter where she says, I do not regret having come to China. I only regret that I've done so little. Such a cost for the gospel. It was only 12 days after this letter was written that Lizzie and her baby and about six other missionaries were hacked to death for the cause of Christ and for the gospel. Katrina, thank you. Can we thank Katrina for reading? Now again, we're illustrating what begins in Acts. We're not trying to be theatrical here. This is Christian history. But the beginning, the first two decades of the 20th century, Christianity in China exploded as the seed of these martyrs. And I wanted you to see that these were regular people, right? In this case, a young pregnant woman, as the seed of the martyrs began to take root. In the year 1900, interestingly enough, 1,500 missionaries answered the call and went to China. That number climbed to over 3,400 by 1905. And by 1927, there were 8,000 Christian missionaries in China. There were 80,000 converts, Chinese Christian converts to Christianity uh, in 1900, in the year that the Boxer Rebellion reached its peak. There were 130,000 in 1904. That number shot up to 400,000 by the early 1920s and doubled to just shy of a million by the early 1930s. Today, it's estimated that there are nearly 110 million Protestant Christians in China. Yeah, amen. And it was the seed of the blood of the martyrs that, that sowed that. This is what God has done throughout the history of the church. Through dispersion and persecution, the gospel spreads. And so sometimes what we think from our perspective, any kind of suffering from our perspectives, perspective as Westerners is bad, but what we perceive to be bad, in this case, dispersion and persecution, God ultimately has for good ends, for his eternal purposes and ends. And he uses the unexpected. And that's true in our lives too. So our application question, and I admit listening to this letter might even seem trite given our problems, but here's the question. How have I speaking to myself too, perhaps been looking at the trials and opposition I faced in my life wrongly in view of this passage, in view of Christian history. You know, if it, direct application, if you face any sort of ridicule or mockery or, or loose persecution because of your faith in your workplace, how do you respond to that? Do you, like Stephen, say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them? Like Lizzie, Lord, I, I don't regret having gone to China. I only wish I could do more for the sake of the gospel? Or are you like me, so often more concerned about preserving my self-respect or whatever it might be? Or maybe your relationship, your marriage is, in, is just in, dire, in a dire place. You have, there's, there's tension, there's frustration, there's anger. Are you 
so concerned about that other person rather than what God wants, your heart, to know him more deeply, more intimately, to cling to him in that moment and to entrust that other person to him. Maybe you have a wayward teenager who's far from the Lord and everything in you wants to manipulate and control and try and control circumstances to draw that teen back to him. But God has things that he wants you to learn in those moments of suffering and trial. Whatever other circumstances may come to your mind, I'm sure there's a myriad. But how can we look at things differently? If God can move his kingdom through persecution and dispersion, how does he want to move me in the trials of my life? Well, let's move to our next point in our next section. We're going to see here in the Acts text that now Luke contrasts the message, the message of the counterfeit gospel and power of God and the message of the authentic. Verse 9 says, A man named Simon, now we're in Samaria, right, had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest of them. And they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. So there's the counterfeit power. Now look at verse 12. So the little word, but. When they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed, and after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John with them. And after they went down there, they prayed for them that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Here we see the message contrasted. We could say that it's Simon's magic versus Philip's ministry. And we see that there's, Luke makes it very clear there are parallels between the two. They both performed signs. They both drew a crowd. People were leaning into what they said. Their, their, uh, their magic and ministry were attributed to a great power. They amazed the Samaritans. We're reminded of, of Moses when Moses brings the plagues to Egypt. Remember that the, the sorcerers uh, and the magicians of Pharaoh actually mimic much of what Moses does in the early plagues. Right? This is a real power. This is not, we're dealing with the spiritual realm of spiritual attack and spiritual battle. But note what distinguishes the authentic ministry. Two things. Number one, the power of God in the New Testament is always cast within the message of the gospel. And we already talked about this a little bit, but in Jesus' ministry, it is, it is the word and the message that he brings, ultimately the cross and certainly in the apostles. And then the second thing is the power of the Holy Spirit such that even Simon himself is, this is a power he'd not seen before that he was very interesting, interested in. The power of God in the New Testament is always cast within the message of the gospel and then validated by the Holy Spirit. Now, what about the nature of the subsequent receiving of the Holy Spirit, right? It says that the Samaritans believed the message. Many of them were baptized, including Simon, by the way. And then there's this period of time, we don't know exactly how long, but the word gets back to the apostles and they send James and Peter representatively down to Samaria, right? And then Peter and James, or Peter and John rather, lay hands on the Samaritans and they receive the Holy Spirit. 
This is a really providential move of God, and it's really fascinating when you start to look at it in detail. So first, imagine a scenario, and then we'll look at the the two things we think that the Spirit of God wants to teach here. First, imagine that Philip, now Philip was part of that Greek-speaking Jewish Christians that we call Hellenized, which means to be enculturated with uh, Greek language and culture, who had been scattered during this persecution, gone to Samaria, probably had a friendly audience in Samaria because the Samaritans were also hated by the Jews. You remember from a couple weeks ago, there'd been favoritism and some racism. And so there's this relational uh, continuity where the Samaritans... Uh, we see in the text, are are open to hearing the gospel. But imagine that Philip had preached the gospel, they'd believed, been baptized, and then he prayed and the Holy Spirit came on them. You can imagine that this new subgroup would almost have, and and receiving the Holy Spirit here, would have almost been like a second Pentecost, a second group, a subgroup, another group. And the age-old divisions of hatred and racism that exist between Samaritans and Jews would have only been driven deeper as opposed to what actually happens. God says, sends Peter and John, who first validate that this is a genuine move of the Holy Spirit, and these conversions are genuine, and then the Holy Spirit comes. And I think two things are at work here, at least. Number one, God wants the new Samaritan believers to understand that they are under apostolic authority. They are under the authority of the apostles at Jerusalem where the church is being birthed. Remember we said that the book of Luke, Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, as he tells us, is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, whereas the book of Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach through the hands of the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the entire church, as it moves out uh, from Jewish audiences, as, it, as the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea and now Samaria and eventually further, as we'll see later, is under apostolic authority. That's an important point, and the Samaritans needed to understand that. That couldn't have happened had they received the Holy Spirit under Philip's leadership. Even Philip as we saw in the last chapter, right, is under the authority of the apostles. Number two, in reverse, and maybe even more important, God wants the Jerusalem church, the Hebraic Jews, and the apostles to note that the Samaritans are every bit as equal to them in Christ, that they are, they are a legitimate part of the church. They are a part of this new thing that God is doing unprecedentedly uh, in, the world, in world history, something that has been prophesied from Genesis 12 all the way through. And so this gap is to help both groups understand that what God is doing is doing something new. The same salvation, the same spirit. Uh, Richard Longnecker in his commentary says this. He says, this action on the part of the providence of God through the Holy Spirit promoted the unity of the church. Incidentally, as we look at the book of Acts and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you look at these five passages, if we had time to look at all of them, you will see that the Holy Spirit come and conversion to Christianity and the receiving of the Holy Spirit happens virtually differently in every one of these five different occurrences. In some cases, uh, those that are converted immediately receive the Holy Spirit. In other cases, there's a delay of time, and, and it's not like in our, our case here until the apostles lay hands. In some cases, there's speaking in tongues associated with the receiving the Spirit. In other cases, there's not. In other words, there's no unifying formula or pattern in Luke or in the book of Acts. 
for how the, the Holy Spirit is, is received. Remember that the book of Acts is a narrative describing what happens as the church is born. It's not prescriptive like Paul's letters teaching doctrine, Christian doctrine. So Luke's account of the book of Acts in the birth of the church, where it concerns baptism of the Holy Spirit, is the step-by-step geographical account, cultural account, of God doing something new. Bringing together into one family, Jew and Samaritan and Gentile out of the entire human family. And as Paul will say later in Galatians, and Revelation tells us as well, out of every tribe, tongue, and nation, God brings this new people, this new family. It's an amazing work of God. Now, it's just to kind of complete the thought here, our later understanding doctrinally of conversion in the Holy Spirit, the normative pattern after the church has been born and spread to these different circles is that baptism of the Holy Spirit comes at the time of conversion. We see that both in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 8. And in fact, the language of the New Testament is what is often being talked about when in people, and particularly in charismatic theology versus evangelical theology, is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it is filling of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Well, first, a little context. Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, what did the non-believers on the outsides watching think? He said they accused them of being drunk, right? So there's some ecstatic manifestation, at least at Pentecost, in the Holy Spirit coming. In addition, in Ephesians 5, the verb tense actually means keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, if you are a Christian this morning, the experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit should be something that occurs many, many times throughout your life, something that you desire, something that you pray for, as opposed to receiving or being baptized in the Holy Spirit, which happens when you are converted. And we need to uh, be very careful Let's just put it this way. Let's be careful about limiting the Holy Spirit as those that are kind of in the evangelical stream of Christian teaching. Say it to this way. One conservative scholar I was reading, he said this as he's grown as a Christian. He said, I actually believed in the holy duet, the father, son, and watch out for those crazy charismatics. And we need to be careful about that attitude too, right? Let's not limit the Holy Spirit so let me give an illustration from my own life. I think I shared a couple weeks ago when we started talking about this topic that oftentimes backstage even or in my study process, I pray open-handedly, Lord God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. May these not be my words, but yours. And I'll tell you, in my own life, that can be, uh, fill, being filled with the Holy Spirit takes, can manifest itself in a, in a myriad of ways. And admittedly, this is subjective. Sometimes it's that God gives wisdom and insight and discernment into a conversation or a counseling setting or something that you know did not come between here, right? God takes over your mind and your mouth in a way that is, is supernatural, it is anointed. Other times it might be insight as, we're, as you're reading and studying the word, just in your own devotions, that there's something that just comes off the page and God fills you with his the spirit. Or maybe if you are a, a parent or you teach Sunday school, or certainly from my point of view as a preacher, there are times where just that burden for the congregation, that pastoral burden, God fills you with that. But at times it's ecstatic too, if I could use that, that word. I'll give you one for instance. A few weeks ago, um, 
I was in my home study and I was praying, as I've shared in the past, that, that the Lord would fill me with the Holy Spirit. And in a way that hasn't happened, in, in, at least in a long time, uh, I would describe it this way. I was filled, I was standing, filled with this overwhelming, pervading sense of the joy of the Lord, a joy that was like, like bursting out of me in, a, in an intangible way. And, and just a sense of God's peace and confidence in who he is and who he's called me to be, even chills going up and down through my body. It was an ecstatic experience. And if you have experienced that, you know exactly what I'm talking about and how hard it is to describe. And if you haven't, you probably think I'm nuts. But that's okay. Read the New Testament, right? Sometimes the filling of the Holy Spirit is subtle and it's an in- insight, and other times it does indeed take over our senses, Nonetheless, nonetheless, this morning, our application is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Seek it, desire it, pray for it. And how do you know? Well, being filled with the Holy Spirit will never be self-promoting. We're gonna get to that in a moment. It will always elevate and be concerned mostly with the gospel of Christ and his cross. And so that appropriately brings us to our next section. I wanna jump back to verse 17 for context It says, then Peter and John laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them cash. He said, give me this power so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter said to him, may your silver, listen to Peter's words, may your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Peter lets him have it. Simon says, pray to the Lord for me. He replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Simon kind of gets blasted here. Our third point is the power sought for selfish gain the power of the Holy Spirit specifically sought for selfish gain, and that our subtext is that authentic ministry calls sin to repentance. Authentic ministry involves rebuke. We're gonna kind of take a long way around to get to that, but let's first look at Simon's sin, right? We have this, uh, uh, he's enamored, I guess, right, with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it, it elicits two questions of which I will tell you there is no real clear answer. What, number one, it's, a two, it's a, one question from two different angles. Was Simon a genuine convert or not? Well, I think you can make a, a case for each one. So let's look at the first. Simon was a genuine convert to Christianity. First, the text tells us earlier that he believed and then was baptized. Now, based on what we preach and what the gospel says, what the New Testament tells us, that belief and then the public demonstration of baptism should have indicated that his faith was genuine and that his response here is just immature and selfish and sinful. And certainly it is true that even after conversion, a new believer, a new Christian, not may have, but will have patterns of thought, behaviors that need to be purged and sanctified and refined, whatever word you want to use, out of our lives. Let me make a pastoral point to you this morning. If you're new here at GBC or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, but you're kind of investigating the Bible or checking out Jesus, here's what that point means. No matter what your baggage, your junk, your sin, the the stuff you bring through those doors that nobody knows about, the Bible does not call you to clean up or get religion 
before Jesus comes into your life. He comes into your life. He has paid for your sin because he loves you and he will come into your life and heart. And then he loves you enough that he will not leave you there. He will begin to grow you. The biblical word is sanctify you, refine you to be the person that he has designed you to be. He will reveal things in your life. So it's certainly possible. Simon's a genuine convert. He's just a knucklehead. Right, he's early in his faith. He's immature. And some scholars kind of take that route. Well, what about the, the idea that he was not a genuine Christian? Well, from the very beginning, Simon responds to, uh, from the flesh, and he's only interested in himself. Right, verses 13 and 19, he follows Philip like a puppy. He's interested in uh, the Holy Spirit's power for personal gain. Remember, this guy comes out of demonism and sorcery and and profiteering on those things. And so he sees an opportunity. And then even his repentance is really not repentance. He says, gosh, pray to God that those bad things you said are gonna happen won't happen to me, right? It's self-preservation. So there's some case to be made that he wasn't actually a genuine convert. There's an extra biblical reason as well. In the late first and early second centuries, some of the early church fathers associate this Simon in Acts 8 with Simon Magus, an infamous heretic called the father of Gnosticism, which was one of the, uh, the earliest heresies of the church that, that began at the time the Bible was written, but became a full-fledged heresy by the second century. And if Simon was Simon Magus, he was one of the people early in Christianity that did the most damage to the, to the gospel. Thirdly, Peter's own rebuke. Right, Peter's words to Simon, he says, you have no part or share in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says, your heart is not right. He says, you're filled with bitterness. And the most concerning to me is that you're bound to wickedness. I didn't take the time to really dig into what he, that word means in that context. But suffice it to say, there's pretty equal disparity between whether Simon was a genuine believer in Jesus or not. And there's all kinds of application we can take from that. One would be make sure that you're calling an election, Peter says in his letter later, are sure. Make sure that you are a genuine believer in Jesus. But another would be, beware of those who try to commandeer the power of the Holy Spirit for personal gain, for notoriety, for merchandising, for promotion of their brand. J. Vernon McGee tips his hat. He says, I believe that Simon is the first religious racketeer in the church, but unfortunately not the last. Well, how do you know if somebody's peddling the Holy Spirit's power for personal gain. The easiest way to tell is authentic ministry of the Holy Spirit will el always elevate the message of Christ and his cross. Jesus come to die for my sins, to pay for them on the cross, raising to life, thereby validating his sacrifice and also offering to me eternal life. That's the gospel. That as I trust in faith what Jesus has done, I have a relationship with God. If that message uh, is either not being spoken or being minimized in any way, beware. But that's not actually our main point of application this morning. We're in a meaty chapter, folks. Main point of application is that authentic ministry involves calling sin to repentance. It involves rebuke. Jesus talks about be sure to deal with the plank in your eye before you remove the speck in your brother or sister's eye. But he doesn't say not to deal with the speck in your brother or sister's eye. He namely is saying to deal with your own heart before God first. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that the scripture has been given to us. The Bible, we have the Bible 
that it's actually, it's profitable is the, the word Paul uses for teaching, training, correcting, and rebuking in righteousness, in love. And yet I think in the church as individual Christians and the church globally, we kind of pass on rebuke, right? Why? Because rebuke isn't comfortable because I'm always thinking my plank should disqualify me from rebuke. And that's not what the Bible's teaching. Peter blasts Simon. Why? Because he's concerned about the purity of the gospel and because he loves Jesus and Jesus' people that much, enough to protect them from Simon, genuine convert or not. So let's be willing in love to sit down with coffee with that person, that brother or sister, and say, dear friend, I got my own stuff God's working on in me, but, but this is wrong. You know the word of God, this is wrong. Where might God be calling me to lovingly rebuke my brother or sister in Christ? This is a necessary part of Christian ministry. Let's move to a final application this morning. We see it in the last verse. It's super encouraging. I'll read the CSB and then we'll look at the message too. It says, so after they, that'd be Peter and John, had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. The message says they preached in every Samaritan town they passed through on their return to Jerusalem. I like that wording a lot. What it's saying is they didn't stop. The message didn't stop. The mission didn't stop. Even with all this crazy with Simon, whether he was Simon Magus or not, God's plan was not deterred. It wasn't deterred by the persecution that broke out from Jerusalem outward. It wasn't deterred by the the scattering. It wasn't deterred by the counterfeit message of magic of Simon that was distracting all these Samaritans. It wasn't deterred by his own selfishness and the rebuke that, that needed to happen. On their way back to Jerusalem, they stopped in these Samaritan villages. And I have to believe that Peter and John had a completely new perspective of what God had done in Jerusalem when they saw these Samaritan Christians do the smallest amount of research on the nature of the relationship between Samaritans and Jews, and this was a profound move of God. So for you and me today, God's plan is not deterred by persecution, so we don't need to fear the future Right? God's plan is not deterred by counterfeits. So even if at some point you got taken in by a charlatan and you gave a bunch of money and it's gone forever, God's not deterred by that. He can somehow work in the midst of that. God's not deterred by selfish individuals, even if that person is you. His plan will move forward. And so what is our mandate? It's to remain faithful, sharing the gospel. Christ crucified for sinners. And as we'll Celebrate in just seven weeks, by the way, Christ's resurrection for new life. Getting excited about that. I want to encourage you in a different way this morning toward this end of what it means to be faithful in spite of the trials that we face, in spite of counterfeits, in spite of selfishness that can creep into the church. I want to invite you to stand for a benediction this morning as I pray over you as we go. Go ahead and stand together and bow your heads and I'm gonna pray over you God's blessing as we, as we head out that we would be faithful to this gospel mandate. Bow your heads with me. Have, Heavenly Father, as we go forth into the world, to our homes and our neighborhoods, our places of business, to our work, to our fields of recreation and rest, may we go with the memory of this precious time 
Lord, when we have refreshed our souls in your presence, in the teaching of your word, in the presence of your people. Lord, may we go with the promise that we carry your love and your blessing to our family and our friends, to our coworkers, to those who serve us in the community, to those we meet along the way. And Lord God, should we face a time when persecution threatens, may we be found faithful to the message of your gospel. Father, would you help us to go with courage that when charlatans seek to overtake or when the Holy Spirit's power is sought for selfish gains, that the light of the true gospel would outshine all pretenders, that we would be resolved to be free from sin by the power of your Holy Spirit and to lovingly rebuke our brother or sister by that same spirit. And finally, Lord God, allow us to go with the joyous reminder that at any moment you may return, Jesus. Lord, I pray this on all our behalf. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.